Hello, and welcome to the podcast, An Intelligent Look at Terrorism. I'm your host, Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat Risk Consulting in Ottawa, Canada. Are you a parent or, you know, do you have siblings and do you remember what it's like growing up as a family? Most of the time it's pretty good, but sometimes, you know, things go a little bit off the rails. And especially if you are a parent and a parent of older children, you know that children can be a challenge sometimes with the stuff that they say, perhaps the stuff that they wear, the things that they do. And sometimes you'll wonder if you're going to make your way through it and the kids will finally grow up. Well, imagine that you're in a situation where you have a a son who not only is, you know, a typical son in terms of of posing challenges to you, but at the end of the day, he ends up joining a terrorist group. And unfortunately, he ends up dying for that terrorist group. That may sound to you as an improbable or even impossible situation or everyone's nightmare. And unfortunately, it has happened. And I have with me on the podcast this evening, a mother who went through this situation about not quite a decade ago now. And she's with me on the line to talk about her experiences, not only with what happened to her son, but with what she's done since that time. And most importantly, to help other parents, especially mothers, dealing with a similar situation. So I want to I want to welcome Christiane Boudreau to the podcast. Welcome, Christiane. Thank you. Now, your son, Damien, uh, ended up fighting for Islamic State. Uh, he died in 2014. And given that that's a little that's about six years ago now, do you mind just giving my listeners a bit of a sense as to what you knew about the situation then and, and how you learned about it. Because for a lot of people, Damien's story was big news in Canada when it, when it happened in 2014, but you know, six years have passed, as, as I've said, and many people probably aren't as familiar with the case as obviously as you are. And, and I was at the time. So if you could just take a few minutes to kind of walk my listeners through, you know, who your son was and, and what happened to him. Well, six years ago in Canada, especially this type of thing was unheard of. So he actually left Canada in 2012. His name is Damien Claremont. And we'd gone through some difficulties as a teenage boy. He had some depression issues, mental health issues, a lot of struggles. He was extremely intelligent, couldn't keep him in school, lost interest. He was very emotional, empathic, uh, sympathized a lot with anything that was done that was that was wrong he couldn't see that it was fair that it was you know justice taking place so there were a lot of struggles even with him growing up politically he was supercharged and and took a huge interest but because of his intelligence level was very easy for him to engage in a conversation with somebody and have them backed into a corner almost in tears even though they were an adult just because he was so intense. So I never thought anything of it back then. I was completely naive, I guess, for lack of a better word. I had no education or background or history or knowledge of anything with regards to violent extremism and terrorism. I didn't follow it. I wasn't somebody who followed the news. Everything was coming up roses. We lived in Canada. Everything's peaceful. Why worry about it? And it wasn't until after he left and he told me that he was going to study Arabic because he'd converted to Islam after a suicide attempt and a serious one at that. Um, And he found peace and settled down. I saw a lot of positive changes. And when he said he wanted to study Arabic and go away, I supported it. But deep down somewhere inside, I didn't believe 
he would leave because he'd had an opportunity to study cooking and become a chef in France with a Michelin star chef at the age of 15. And he wouldn't go for the summer because he didn't want to be away from his family, even though he would have been staying with his grandparents. So when the day came and he actually got on the plane, he wouldn't let me take him. I knew something was wrong, but I couldn't put my finger on it. And it wasn't until, even though we started conversing on a regular basis through email and phone calls, it wasn't until after we lost contact just before Christmas in 2012, towards the end of January 2013, that I'd heard from CSIS, which is our security intelligence service in Canada, that there were concerns and they started asking questions. They showed up at my house. I didn't even know what a CSIS was. I had to call my parents in France and say, who are these people and why are they coming to see me? So that's how much I didn't know. And they explained to me they had suspicions that he had traveled abroad to join a terrorist organization and traveled into Turkey to then travel into Syria to fight with terrorist organizations against Bashar al-Assad. And that was my introduction to everything. So you were never actually approached by the security service or the RCMP or anyone prior to your son's departure for Syria to go fight with against Bashar al-Assad then? Not once. In fact, like I said, I didn't even know. I called my father. I still remember as if it were just yesterday. The memory will never leave. And I still remember calling my father in France, there eight hours ahead, saying, who are these CSIS people? Why are they calling me? What's this all about? I've never heard of them. So I didn't even know what the organization was. And no police, no RCMP, no one showed at my door or called, nothing prior. So as you said, you know, Damien had gone through some difficulties, as a lot of people do. I mean, you know, teenage boys are, I, I, I had one too. He was, he was pretty good, but my teenage daughter was certainly a challenge, I'll tell you that. Um, and, but you saw positive signs, like you said, obviously. And I think we do see this a lot with people who, for whatever reason, either rediscover the faith in, into which they were born or discover a new faith. And it gives them stability. It gives them a sense of purpose. It gives them a sense of calm. So you had no real concerns initially when he, upon, when he converted that this would turn into like a, a, a very negative way or that it would take him down a pathway that would result in, in some bad things happening to him. Absolutely not. I mean, when he found his faith, because I, I was following a Christian faith and he had a falling out, he, he said he didn't believe in it. That was fine. I'd always raised him that he had to, it was something that was personal so that he had to find his own way. But when he found his faith and he started bringing friends in, for me, that was great because he'd stayed in the basement. That's where his room was. He didn't come out. He was almost agoraphobic where he would even wear a hoodie and cover himself up so nobody would see him when we were out. And it was only for something extreme that he would he would go out of an appointment or anything like that. So it was a huge shift. And the young men that were coming into my home that he was introducing me to were fabulous. They were supportive. They were positive, wonderful people. I saw a great change in him. He was getting out. He was working. He was doing all the things that I had concerns about before. 
He wasn't living a real life until then. So all the signs are positive. And just for my listeners who aren't as familiar with the Canadian scene, uh, Damien Claremont was not the only person from, from Calgary, Alberta, so the western part of the country, who did end up going abroad to join a terrorist group. We had several people, uh, one of whom was actually a, a very successful uh, person in the oil patch who ended up becoming a suicide bomber for Islamic State in around 2013, 2014. So it's not as if this thing was, you know, a one-off kind of thing. You know, Christiane, your story, and I've heard it many times, and you and I have spoken on many occasions, is something that no no one wishes upon their worst enemy to have to go through that as a mother. And yet you've, in a way, you have built upon this to, to sort of move forward. I know that you were the founder, I believe, of a group called Mothers for Life, which looks at trying to help people who are in similar situations. Can you walk us through sort of what you tried to do to sort of build some kind of good over the tragedy that your son had gone through? It was it was a challenge um, because in Canada, nobody had really heard of this type of movement. We weren't familiar with violence as a whole on a regular basis. It was something that happened everywhere else. Um, it was very difficult for me to reach out and try to find any help for my family. And having other younger children with a large age gap I was really concerned about their well-being. How do I speak to them? How do I work through this? I, I had a lot of people, once I did start speaking out, um, condemn me. Basically, I was a mother of a terrorist. I must have raised him this way. I should be killed myself. You got that kind of feedback from people? You got people actually accusing you of being responsible for Damien's fate? Absolutely. And, and as a parent, in a lot of occasions for anything if your child commits a crime doesn't do well in school very often everybody wants to point a finger at somebody and it's the parent that takes the blame that just sounds i mean awful um i mean certainly in my career there there, there definitely were instances where parents were indeed responsible for their children's activities. I think the Cotter family being a prime example, whatever you think of Omar Cotter, there's no question that his mother and father were terrorists and did belong to a terrorist group and raised their children in a terrorist camp. But I find it unconscionable that people would turn to you and say, well, you know, it's your fault or, or that kind of thing. So what, once you got, you know, once the sort of negative feedback maybe ebbed a little bit, what is it you found yourself doing that to, to try and, and talk about your experience in a way that might in fact help people dealing with similar situations and in the best case scenario would uh, allow them to avoid a situation like what happened to your son, Damien? Well, the first step that I took was the fact that it was so quiet. It was something that wasn't discussed or talked about. There were no outlets. There was no way my experience had been, even when I'd reached out to psychologists and counselors, I wasn't getting responses back. Or if I did get them, they were basically questioning my mental health. The fact that I was even mentioning the fact that my son had joined this terrorist organization overseas, they thought I'd lost my rocker. And I was just trying to find help for my kids and how I could best support them, the younger ones that were still here. And just that in itself, I realized because there was no light and no education on the topic, that nobody had nowhere to turn. And I started looking for anywhere, anybody who had any experience, who could help enlighten me, help educate me, any way that I could even start working with my son while he was still over there and communicating to try to find a way to get them to, him to come back home. 
um, try to make our family whole again. And during that time, the same thing was, I'd been actually biased since agents who had come to my home threatened on a few occasions, saying that I wasn't allowed to speak to anybody about it, um, not even family members, that these people were bad and they knew where I was. And if it got out there, they'd come after me and my family. It was horrible. I was terrified and I just needed somebody to connect with, to try to understand, to not feel so guilty, to try to process it and, and figure out the best way to maneuver around. So I started seeking out others. And, and instead of just staying in Canada, I started looking on an international level. And I think what people don't realize is when you connect with another person who's gone through a similar experience, who understands it, the first thing is a sense of safety, a sense of connection, and knowing that they're not going to judge you because they've experienced it. To be able to connect and, and talk about it freely and openly is, is the beginning of understanding and healing, which emotionally we all need as human beings to have those connections. For those who aren't, you know, don't follow this issue as closely as I have, in my professional career and in my retirement, there are estimates that there are upwards of 30 to 40,000 people from probably close to 100 nations have left their homes and gone to join Islamic State or any other terrorist group in the Iraq, Syria area around 2013, 2014, 2015. And they're not all teenagers. Some of them were older. Some of them were younger. Some brought their families with them. So there must have been actually potentially a very huge, I will use the word market, an opportunity out there to actually connect with people who'd, who'd gone through similar things as you did. And, and you appear to have made, had some success in making that those kinds of connections then. Um, I wouldn't say it was there that simple. Uh, a few families in Canada here were terrified. They didn't want to talk to anybody. Uh, they kept all their doors closed. They were afraid of people finding out. They were afraid of the judgment. It was much easier on an international level in other countries because there was a stronger sense of self uh, less fear factor of consequences, losing jobs because of judgment, because of those around them that would say, we don't want you around, we, we don't want to be associated, whatever the case might be, whether it be legal, financial, there's so many other stressors that can be added on top in layers to the current situation you're going through. And I think it, it took a lot of work, uh, a lot of connecting, that human touch, even for people to believe that I wasn't just trying to trick them into saying something before they would even start opening up and connecting. Well, you know, kudos to you for, for making the effort. I, I certainly, as I'm sitting here listening to you, Christiana, and part of me is rather incredulous that people would judge others just because of what their offspring had done. But I think that's probably maybe a bit of human nature, right? We tend to assume, well, if, if my son or daughter did X, as you said at the outset, maybe the the parents are partly at fault. They didn't do this or they did that or they neglected this or whatever kind of thing. And it it's hard for me to believe that, you know, these people would, would be treated this way, but it also then explains why people are so reluctant because 
they don't want to, you know, no one wants to air their dirty laundry in public, right? And especially with dirty laundry of this sort, there would be that fear factor that you could never return back to normal then. So how long did it actually take you then to start making these inroads and start making these connections? It took me probably about six months to a year. First, I started connecting with some journalists just by way of seeing documentaries and wanting to find people that may be over there to be able to find my son. And then it grew from there. And as I started to network, they started reaching out. They said, oh, we, we know of different organizations in other countries that didn't exist in Canada um, that could maybe possibly help. And through talking on the phone, internet searches, sending emails, just persistence, I didn't sleep. <laughs> I was up till two or three in the morning, just emailing, trying to reach out, anything, trying to find anybody who would start that connection. And it wasn't until just before my son was killed, my first connection was made with Daniel Kohler, who works for GERDS now mm -hmm. in Germany and specializes in this kind of thing when I was asking for help. And he finally responded with a step-by-step -step plan of how we could start reconnecting with my son, perhaps building those relationships that are so key and important in, in trying to help somebody come out of those types of circles. It's, it's the same thing with cults and that deprogramming kind of pulling them away. So only after that conversation with him, he developed a plan, emailed it to me. I received his email two days after I received the news that Damien had been killed. You know, it's funny you mentioned Dan Daniel Cole. I know Daniel. I've met him on several occasions, and he really is, I don't know if I call him a pioneer, but he was very, very active in a, in a program called Exit Deutschland, which dealt with the far right, trying to get people to leave the far right, white supremacist, neo-Nazi movements in Germany, and then then I believe he was involved also in a program called Hayat, which is looking at Islamist extremists as well. You talked a bit, Christiane, about you know your your dealings with CSIS, where I used to work. Can you give us a sense too as what your connections, relationship, or responses were like with the Canadian government writ large? Well, in the beginning, I just wanted to be as cooperative as possible. They kept promising to help the family. They kept saying, "We'll do whatever we can." Um, and then I noticed. It, it was daunting because there was a fear factor. Again, the naivety and not understanding what my rights were. Um, and at the same token, they would show up at work. They would show up at my home. I was traveling to France to visit my parents and received a phone call while I was there and, and them saying, you're in France and we're concerned you're going to go over into Syria. And I was like, I'm here with my kids and family. Uh, what makes me think I'm going to go look for a needle in it? in a haystack and, and what would that do my to my children? It became very strained quickly. And when I started looking for other outlets and, and other ways of getting help, and I started reaching out, I did get a horrific phone call from the agent I've been dealing with who started yelling and screaming. I don't think they understand the concept of, of connections and the relationship building and, and there's a level of the political piece in behind. And instead of understanding people and human nature and the best way that we could all help each other, and some of those roadblocks and barriers caused me to shut down completely in the beginning. And I was mortified and hurt. And I felt like my government 
had done this to me. I was angry. I felt like they'd done nothing except stood by, known about it, and watched him go off. Um, it, it was a horrible, horrible feeling and bitterness, resentment, whatever you could see. And to this day, I, I think I still have never had any warm and fuzzy feelings. It was very much black and white responses. Let's blow you off. Very political, cold. Um, and I'm working hard to change that, but it's not an easy step to take. No, no, absolutely. I think that, you know, as you said, I think that people who are going through situations like you were, people want, they're reaching out for help. They want to be treated humanely. They want to be treated in a way where people are going to listen to what you're saying and, and do the utmost to to try to help you. Do you know of any, just out of curiosity, Christiane, um, do you know of any success stories that you may have been involved with where people were able to locate their family members and actually either convince them to leave or actually play a role in extricating them from those areas of the world? Or is that something that you don't have any knowledge of? Um, for those family members that have been, that, that actually were successful in going overseas, we've only had one family where we were successful in bringing them home along with the children. There were four children. Um, they went over with two, came back with four, and that was in the United States. I do know of some other success stories, and that was over in Europe. So far, to my knowledge, in the cases that I've worked with in Canada and where we've been involved with communicating with Global Affairs and any other outfits to try to make something happen or bring somebody home or get them at least to safety, even if it's in another country, we've been stonewalled every which way going. I do know that the Canadian government is is like many governments in the sense that with the whole issue of what do you do with returnees, uh, so people who have in fact come home or perhaps a little more pointed, a lot of people, probably tens of thousands are located in refugee slash prison camps in northern parts of Iraq and Syria. And a lot of governments seem to be vacillating or actually taking no action at all with respect to actively repatriating their citizens. And I think one of the, the, the big controversial matters now is, is especially to do with the children, right? You mentioned people going over with kids, having more kids under Islamic State, and then these children who didn't make a choice to go. They, they, are, they are the victims of their own parents' decisions. And, and people, including myself, have been arguing for a very long time that we should repatriate the children. I, I think it gets a little bit more interesting when it comes to what do you do with the adults in the sense that if you do bring them back, there is the challenge for what are you going to charge them with? Uh, how are you going to amass the evidence to go to trial? Because, it, of course, it is an offense under the criminal code to leave the country to join a terrorist group. So I assume from your what you've been telling me, Christiane, that you would be very much a proponent of, of doing our utmost to bring these people back to the best of our ability. Absolutely. I think it's our duty as a country. It's our responsibility. First off, they're our citizens. We let them go. And, and often in the case, even of my son, and when the CSIS agents did come visit, they said they'd been watching him for a couple of years. So they knew of his activity. They'd admitted openly that they were aware that he was um, participating in events and, and 
close associated, closely associated with those who had already gone off and joined the organization. So I think with that sense of responsibility and the expectation that if we have people from another country, immigrants that come to our country, commit a crime, we want to deport them. We don't want them in our country. That's part of accepting them as a citizen. Then why should we expect anything less the other way? If we've turned our head and knowingly kind of closed off and, and turned a blind eye to them traveling overseas with the intent to join a terrorist organization and done nothing to stop it, then we should have them here. And if that means prosecuting them here, which it should, um, with whatever evidence we can gather, then that's what we should be doing. Mm -hmm. I am aware of some families that are over there still um, in Syria, Canadian families, and the conditions are horrendous. And if you look from a human rights perspective, knowing the conditions and how we're leaving them there, whether they're criminals or not, until that's determined, it's essentially saying they're guilty until proven innocent, which is backwards to what we're trying to right. teach our children, our justice system represents. You, you made a remark earlier how uh, some people were afraid to speak up because of how they would be judged in terms of what their children had done or their family members had done. Do you think that given the absolutely heinous nature of what Islamic State did to people over there, that that might be one of the factors influencing the government in, in failing to make a decision? Or do you think there's other factors involved as well? Oh, absolutely. Other factors. Again, I, I think it's all political. It's about the public votes, popularity. It's never about that. If that were the case, as we're seeing right now, there's police brutality out there that happens. Does that mean the whole police force is horrible? Or are we going to look at each individual as a human being right. first? Right. As soon as somebody's associated, for whatever reason they were involved, and in the one case that we did bring them back into the U.S., there's a whole load of complex pieces that led up to them leaving. And until we know the full picture, how can we judge them as a human being mm -hmm. unless they've been in their footsteps? And if we're going to automatically assume that they're the same as everything that's been represented in media alone, then... Basically, we're saying media can lead our decision that everybody gets grouped in one lump sum organization. Mm -hmm. All politicians are bad. All police officers are bad because they killed one killed somebody and so on and so forth. The individuality of it needs to be represented as that. And I think that's what we have to focus on. Mm -hmm. I'm not a big fan of, of, of hindsight. I mean, they say hindsight's twenty twenty, and obviously... As we grow and we mature, we learn things. And if we had if we had the opportunity to go back and do things differently, we probably would based on the fact that we've learned something. But so this is perhaps an unfair question, but given what you've learned over the past six years or so, the uh, quasi movement you've been involved in with talking to others, knowing what you know now, what would you have done differently in 2011, 2012, 2013? Oh, there's so many things I would have done differently. <laughs> First off, as a parent, we're always so afraid of judgment, um, especially those with good intentions. And quite often when we do reach out for help, a lot of times we're told we're overreacting. 
And for years with Damien's difficulties that he'd had, I kept reaching out, reaching out at one point, I even had child services say, look, you're gonna have to make a decision, either kick your son out of the home or we're gonna take your other children away. And I was so worn down, I gave up. I gave up fighting. I started listening to advice I was getting instead of questioning everything and taking it upon myself to re continue reaching out until my gut told me that help was right. You do need help as a parent. The, the saying goes, it takes a village to raise a child for a reason. And that's the truth. We as parents, we think we're solely responsible for our kids, but because we're so close to them and that emotional relationship and connection is so complex, you need the outside perspectives and supports there. And knowing now what I do, that's what it would have taken. It would have taken the full social circle to engage them. Mm. I would have definitely, if I'd had any inside knowledge that these things existed, the one person who was close to my son and could have had huge impact was my dad living in France. I would have taken my son on a plane, gone there and said, hey, we're going to sit as a family to have that impact and have that extra support. I didn't do that. At some point, I just got tired and tried to listen to what psychiatrists and psychologists gave me and everything else with regards to his mental health and medication. And that wasn't the be all end all. You know, this we call it a wave of, of so-called foreign fighters in 2013, 2012, 2014. That appears to have dissipated, especially in many ways because of Islamic State is, is not what it was six years ago. It's still around and people who claim it's dead are making a very, very, you know, a bad statement because it's not. But we don't have quite the attraction that there was once. As I said, between 30 and 40,000 people are estimated to have gone to fight for this particular group. Learned, ha, learn, having learned what we have learned, Christiane, from this particular time period in recent history, are we better off to react to it next time it happens? I think react is a bad word. <laughs> That's the problem. We tend to react after the fact instead of being proactive. I think we should learn from it. And we've seen it. Like Again, we had a big cult movement years ago in the 60s and 70s. We still have right-wing movements that are active. We have the Ku Klux Klan, everything else. And this is something that's not going to go away. It just shifts from what's sexy for the day. And now you, you see the incel movements. And I'm hearing from parents about other concerns and connecting with me about different types where their, their young person is intelligent, empathic, cares about the future, cares about their country and the world wants to make a difference and they're finding ways to do it, whatever motivates them, whatever engages them emotionally. And we, we lost the opportunity back then as far as the Islamic State goes, but for any future movements, and there will always be a new one. And if we think that there won't be, we're, we're walking along blinds. I don't know why we would do that, but I think there's a huge component that we're, we're missing with regards to the emotional engagement, emotional supports that are there. We have kids that have really intelligent things to say and they feel like they don't have an impact and we need to start engaging them in some of that stuff so that they don't feel like they need that immediate response of resorting to violence. And looking at the way that our world leaders behave, uh, 
you have to admit, if they do turn around and resort to violence or say things that are off the cuff and going over the other side of the fence, they can go back and say, well, so-and-so said, and these are world leaders. We have to look at how we're behaving too, what examples we're setting as adults, what we're teaching them in our actions more than just what we're telling them they need to do and not do. We need to start today making a change in everything and how we're connecting as people. Any last things you want to leave us with, Christiane, in terms of what you went through and maybe hope for the future, if I could even use that term? You always have to have hope. Um, My biggest hope, I think, is definitely instead of the fear, which is a very strong emotion, and again, as human beings, emotion is our biggest motivator, we have to start looking at that more than just the mental health piece. I think it's very important. Emotional health is so much more important than just mental health alone. We need to start connecting and start being much more proactive with our young kids, educating them to be resilient, coping skills, how to reach out, and teaching parents that it's okay to reach out and not be judged. We have to bring those barriers down somehow and unite, and that's what makes us stronger. And by being there for others, uh, just supporting on an emotional level is a big piece. And I think our governments needs to start standing behind that instead of putting these political structures in place that are drawn out, they're painful, they're punitive, and cause further frustration. There, there are other ways. So instead of keeping it at such a high level, let's come back down to community and villages and start building at the roots where it counts. I want to thank you, Christiane, for taking the time to come on the podcast. I know that this is obviously something which you continue to live with. It can't be an easy thing to have to discuss. I do appreciate you being honest and open with your with your thoughts and with your words. And I hope that people listening, you know, have learned something about, you know, there are multiple sides to these stories. And as, as speaking as somebody who used to work for CSIS, I, I think we often, maybe we forget that, you know, in our in our quest to learn intelligence and learn what's happening, we sometimes, I think, forget that there's there's human beings uh, on the other side that we, you know, whose needs and who's who we have to listen to as well. So, thank you very, very much for taking the time to be on the podcast. Thanks for giving me an opportunity, and just let everybody know if you if you can post our link for Mothers for Life, we're open to talk to anybody at any time. I'm here, and I'm still connecting. Still have a lot of parents, and I do whatever I can to get them connected to those who can help support them at least emotionally and empower them to find the resources they need. We will definitely put a link to Mothers for Life on on the end of the podcast. So maybe somebody will have a listen and click on the link and get a hold of you. Well, I'll tell you, to be honest, lately, it's been busier than ever. Good. Um, And I've never, like I said, I've never turned, the the most recent one was even with a, a parent whose son wanted to join these violent protests that just broke out in the U.S., We will definitely put a link to Mothers for Life on the end of the podcast. So thanks again, Christiane. Thank you. So that was my my conversation with Christiane Boudreau, whose son Damien Claremont uh, joined the Islamic State and was killed in in 2014. What do you think of our conversation? Let me know what your thoughts are. You can reach me on email, uh, borealisrisk at gmail.com or on Twitter at borealisaves. You can also find me on LinkedIn and on Facebook. If you want to subscribe to all the content that I produce at Borealis, so podcasts such as these, 
quick hits, today in terrorism, other perspectives, simply go to my website, www.borealisrecetonrisk.com, hit the subscribe button, put in your email address, and you'll get a daily digest every morning free of charge to your inbox. I hope to talk to you soon. Until then, stay safe.